The most famous celebrity wedding in my lifetime uh, would have to be Prince Charles and Lady Diana, right? This happened on July 29th, 1981. Some of you uh, weren't even born yet uh, for this wedding, but this was billed as the wedding of the century. It was an incredible spectacle. I remember visiting my grandparents down in Florida at the time, uh, and I remember my family watching this wedding on TV. I was a 15-year-old boy, and I just could not believe the spectacle that this wedding was. It was held at St. Paul's Cathedral, uh, which uh, it held 3,500 people. 3,500 people attended the wedding, which is you know, pretty huge in and of itself. But 750 million people watched this wedding on television. That's how big of a deal it was. It cost $48 million in uh, 1981 dollars, which equates to about $90 million uh, today. $90 million, yeah. So uh, we spent less than that on our wedding. Uh, <laughs> a little bit. So at most wedding ceremonies, you know, the, there's a confession, right? The, the bride and the groom confess their undying love for each other and, and their intention to join themselves together forever uh, in their marriage. And then following the confession, then the minister uh, swears them to a covenant. So you have a confession and you have a covenant. This is this, the sacred oath now uh, to love, cherish, and honor each other through good times and bad, through sickness and in health. Well, Charles and Diana, like most couples, confessed their love to each other. They promised to be faithful, uh, and we know how that worked out. There were problems going in, right? Uh, Charles was 12 years older and had a girlfriend on the side. That was one problem. Uh, so that was a, a big issue. And then Diana was suspicious of Charles and insecure, and she was resentful of, of all the public and the family scrutiny uh, that had gone on uh, with her new title. So looking back, uh, it's obvious that, that it wasn't going to last, but back then we were thinking this is a fairy tale wedding. What could go wrong, right? And, and as it turns out, lots of things could go wrong, and predictably, uh, they were divorced 12 years later. But the reason why so many uh, marriages and so many contracts get broken in general is just because we as people have a hard time keeping our word to each other uh, to do what we promise to do. Uh, it's so hard for one person, let alone two people, to keep any covenant. And so in marriage, the pressures of finances and kids and schedules and, and unfulfilled hopes, dreams and expectations, uh, those are significant obstacles in any marriage. But it's not just marriage, it's any contract that we enter into. We're all sinners, and we've all broken promises, and we've all been on the other end of, of receiving, uh, being the victim of broken promises. And the reason why lawyers make millions of dollars writing 100-page contracts just to buy a piece of property is because we can't trust people to keep their words, right? And, and you and I are no different. We, we all are prone to want to break our words, to wiggle out of whatever agreement it is that we've signed. Uh, so a contract is a confession uh, that you want to do business with somebody, and it's a covenant that you will keep your end of the bargain. But we break those things, and that's why uh, we have these enormous contracts. Well, fortunately, God isn't subject to the same human pressures and the human sin that we are subject to. Uh, when God confesses his love for his people, it's for all eternity. And when God makes a covenant with his people, he will keep it even if the people that he makes it with are unfaithful to him. And so it's God's faithfulness to his nature, to his character, uh, and to his promises that ensures the covenant. Because if his covenant depended on human faithfulness, well, it wouldn't stand a chance. 
so though God chose Israel as his covenant people, Israel continued in sin and continued in idol worship throughout its history. And God sent prophets to warn them, and still they persisted in sin. But what we learn throughout Ezra and Nehemiah is that God is faithful. In fact, if we looked at Ezra and Nehemiah as a whole, Ezra and Nehemiah is really a, a single 100-year snapshot in the 6th and 5th centuries BC of God's faithfulness to Israel despite Israel's unfaithfulness. He brought them back from exile uh, to Jerusalem again. And so what we've seen here uh, in these last couple chapters, in Ezra chapter 8, Ezra read the law. Uh, and then uh, after they read the law, uh, they celebrated the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Tabernacles. Then in what we'll see today in Ezra, uh, Ezra chapter, I'm sorry, Nehemiah 9, Israel confesses its sin. And then in Nehemiah 10, Israel commits to keep the covenant. Uh, so that's where we're going today. Now, this confession of sin... A confession has two meanings, uh, at least the way I'm using the word confession. We see them both in Nehemiah 9. Uh, one way is to confess sin, uh, to admit our sin. Uh, when we're confessing sin, we admit that we have been sinful, we have broken God's covenant, we have uh, disobeyed him, and that's what it means in one sense. And throughout chapter 9 of Nehemiah, the Levites confess their sin uh, of their ancestors going back over a thousand years. But the other meaning of confess is, is to, to tell the truth about God, to praise him for who he is, uh, to talk about his attributes, to talk about what he's done. Uh, that's a confession as well. So when we confess our faith, we're, we're telling others about what God has done, to, uh, about who God is and how he's helped us, uh, what he's like. Uh, all of these things are involved in a confession. So, for example, the Westminster Confession is not a confession of sin, right? It's a, it's a set of beliefs, a set of truths spoken about God uh, and other areas of theology. So that's what we'll see in Nehemiah 9. We're going to see both kinds of confession. There's this admission of sin and confessing the greatness and the attributes of God uh, back and forth at the same time. And then in chapter 10, we'll be talking about the commission, the, the recommitting themselves to keeping God's covenant. This is not a new covenant. This is God's covenant with Moses. The Mosaic law is what we're talking about, uh, that God gave almost a thousand years before Nehemiah's day. Uh, but just like recommitting to a diet every Monday morning, right? Some of us do that. Uh, the Israelites were recommitting themselves here in Nehemiah chapter 10 to God's law. They vowed again to keep it. And they had failed over and over again over the centuries to keep God's law. But God never fails to keep his end of the covenant because of his nature and his character. God disciplined his people by sending them into exile. But here he is again, uh, receiving his people again with open arms back into the land of Israel. So uh, to, to set up this entire uh, chapter 9 and 10 of confession and recommitment to the covenant, uh, we have the assembly and preparation, verses nine, or chapter 9, verses 1 and 3. On the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the wrongdoings of their fathers. And while they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day, and another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. So remember we talked last week, they had completed the wall in the sixth month on the Hebrew calendar, which is the month of Elul. And now we're in the seventh month, which is the month of Tishri. 
Tishri has these three very special days. Day one is the Feast of Trumpets. Day 10 is the Day of Atonement. Uh, and then there's the week, which is the Feast of Tabernacles on day 15 to 22. So we talked about all those things last week. They had celebrated those things last week. The 23rd, they went back to their homes. And now it's the 24th day of Tishri. And the people assembled again. And this time it's to confess their sins and to confess God's greatness. So they fasted. They dressed for the occasion. They dressed in sackcloth and ashes because they weren't uh, now dressing in celebratory clothes. They were dressing in clothes of mourning, uh, clothes uh, that, that, that talked about mourning their sin and, and their humility before the Lord their God. And they also separated themselves from any foreign people because they were talking about confessing their sins and recommitting to the covenant that God made with them through Moses. So this is a Jewish covenant. So they separated themselves from any Gentiles because only Jews would participate in this ritual. And then they read the law for a quarter of the day. That's six hours of reading the law. And then they weren't done with that. For another quarter of the day, they confessed their sin. Uh, so we see here uh, one thing particularly that I think we can learn from this pattern is that it's important that God speaks first before the confession happens. Uh, they read the word, they understood the word, and then they confessed their sins. So I think proper response to God happens when we've heard from God, when we've read his word, when we understand what he's speaking to us, when we know God, then we can confess our sins after we've understood what he said. And, and if we're in the word daily, then we can respond rightly to what the word says. So be in the word, uh, let the Lord speak, and then we can respond properly. All right, so we've had this, uh, they've gathered together, they've read the law, and now they've, they've talked about having six hours of confession. So verses 5, the second half of verse 5 through verse 31 are now a summary of the confession that they made for these six hours. So they confess God's faithfulness to them uh, on the one hand, starting with creation and moving all the way forward to the present day uh, where they're standing there confessing their sin and the sin of their ancestors. So let's uh, begin to look at these verses. Uh, verses 5 and 6, they're just going to talk about creation here, uh, honoring God, blessing God for his creation. The Levites are the people who get up and they do the confession. And this is what they say. Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. May your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, the heavens of heavens with all their lights, the earth and everything that is on it, the seas and everything that is in them. You gave life to all of them and the heavenly lights bow down before you. So this is their confession of God's greatness, right? Their, their confession goes all the way back to the beginning, the beginning of time. Uh, as Genesis says, in the beginning, God created. And so the Levites acknowledged that fact. Uh, and that's why we are not pantheists, right? We don't believe that God is everything and is in everything. We don't believe that everything is God and God is everything. No, God created everything. He exists separate and apart from his creation. Uh, and he has authority over all of his creation. That's why the heavenly lights bow down before him. So we're not pantheists, we're also not atheists because of these verses. God created everything we see, everything that you can look at, God created it and he controls it all with his powerful hand and God is sovereign over everything. So this is uh, them attributing greatness to God through creation. 
And now from creation, uh, the Levites confess the beginning of Israel's history now, starting with Abraham. And this is verses 7 and 8. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite to give it to his descendants. And you have fulfilled your promise because you are righteous. So the Levites confess God's righteousness, the, the, the righteousness of God in, in making these promises to Abraham. This is going all the way back now to Genesis 12, where God promises Abraham land, seed, and blessings. Seed means descendants. He reaffirmed the covenant with Abraham in chapter 15 of Genesis and chapter 17 of Genesis. And Abraham believed God, uh, Genesis 15, 6, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham was a man of faith, and he proved his faith uh, over in Genesis back when uh, God asked him to sacrifice his son, his only son, Isaac. So Abraham takes Isaac, goes on a three-day journey to Mount Moriah, and he lays him down on the altar, and he raised the knife, and he's about to slay his only son when God stops him. He tells him, stop. But because of Abraham's faith, God reaffirmed the covenant to Abraham yet again to give the land to Abraham's descendants. Now, think about this from the perspective of the people in Nehemiah's day. They had been in exile for a couple of generations now, right? And now they're back in the land. So this promise of land to Abraham's descendants would be very meaningful and relevant to these people who had just returned from Babylon. And so they confessed that God had fulfilled his covenant because he is righteous by bringing them back to the land. And so the righteousness of God is is central uh, to the prayer of the Levites here throughout chapter 9. Israel had been unfaithful, but God had been faithful uh, to fulfill his end of the deal, to bring them back into the land. So that's the promises fulfilled through Abram. Now, The Levites next confessed God's faithfulness to them in bringing them through uh, this time of exodus uh, from Egypt and guiding their steps in the wilderness wanderings. And this is going to be verses 9 to 15. Now, the verses get kind of long, and so I'm not going to read them all. I'm just going to summarize as we go. Uh, But the Levites recounted God's deliverance from Egypt. God heard the cries that they cried out to to, uh, God, and God sent Moses to Egypt, to Pharaoh, to be God's mouthpiece, uh, to tell Pharaoh to let the people go. And when Pharaoh refused, God sent 10 plagues on uh, Pharaoh and Egypt, the 10th plague being the death of the firstborn of Egypt. All the firstborn sons of Egypt died. And after that happened, well, then Pharaoh let them go. But after they were gone and they had traveled into the wilderness, Pharaoh changed his mind and he sent his armies after these Israelites. And so uh, the Israelites are backed up against the Red Sea uh, and they see Pharaoh's army coming and they think the situation is hopeless, but God parts the Red Sea for them. And so they walk through the Red Sea on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried it, the sea fell in on them. And now, safely on the other side of the sea, and this is verses 11 and 12 of chapter 9, God led them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to Mount Sinai, where 
verses 13 and 14, God gave them the covenant, the law, uh, the Sabbath, and the commandments uh, that they should obey that would distinguish them from all other people on the land and make them God's chosen people. And to sustain them in the desert, verse 15, God gave them manna from heaven, water from the rock, and told them to enter the land that God promised. So God's faithfulness to Israel while they were in the desert and through the exodus. Uh, so that's 9 through 15. Now, as we go further now, we're going to see the Levites alternating confession of God's greatness with confession of their own sin. Uh, as we follow through the next several centuries, uh, remember the Levites are talking about God's faithfulness through a, you know, over a thousand years of time here. So we'll be looking at uh, verses 16 to 13. Again, too much to put on the screen, but follow along in your Bibles. We'll be talking about Israel's rebellion and God's grace over the centuries. So verses 16 and 17, uh, the Levites confessed the sin of their ancestors in not obeying the commandments. They acted stubbornly. They were stiff-necked. They refused to obey the commandments. And they even appointed a leader to lead them back into Egypt after God had freed them from Egypt. Can you imagine that? That's recounted in Numbers chapter 14. Uh, they had been in bondage uh, for 400 years, and, and rather than being free from men uh, and free to do what they would want to do under God's authority, uh, they would rather uh, go back to the Egyptians who would enslave them and abuse them for 400 years. This is the level of disobedience uh, that they had toward God. So starting, though, in the first half of uh, chapter, verse 17, or in the second half of verse 17, they confessed God's grace, starting with the words, but you are God. But you, but God. Now, these are some of the best words in the whole Bible, aren't they? When we see but you or but God, uh, you know that God is about to uh, do something great for them in spite of what they have done in terms of obedience. Uh, they're all over the Bible. We can find but God in many places and several times here in Nehemiah chapter 9. But my favorite but God in all the Bible is in Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in your offenses and sins in which you previously walked according to the course of this world. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We were dead in our sins, brothers and sisters. That means that we were subject to the consequences of our sin, which means eternity in hell. And that because we are sinful people and we are completely hopeless to change ourselves by our own power. We can't do it. But God. But God. God loves us so deeply that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Uh, he died for our sins and by faith in him alone, we know that we have eternal life. And if, if we've trusted Jesus as our savior, then we are no longer dead in our sins. We've been made alive by Jesus Christ and the work that he's done. And we have that eternal life. Now that is an unbelievable blessing. It just shows God's faithfulness. Now returning to the Israelites, God could have forsaken them when they refused to obey. Uh, but he didn't. They confessed God's grace, but you are God. And so the emphasis throughout this whole section is on all that God gave to the Israelites, all that he gave them. God was generous to them and blessing them and sustaining them in the face of their unfaithfulness all of these years. 
Now, we often read this story and we just can't believe how stiff-necked these people were. But I wonder if we, you and I, take for granted how generous God is to us sometimes. Every breath we take, every bite we eat, every sip we drink uh, is because of his provision. The abilities we have, the jobs we're able to hold, uh, the roofs over our heads, these are all gifts from God. And still, God's provision does not guarantee our satisfaction, does it? Uh, For all God has given to us, we are still prone to grumbling. And when we do that, it shows that we're not satisfied in God, but only in what he provides. And that's a slap in the face to God. We need to be satisfied with God and be thankful for what he provides. Uh, And so we're prone to this. We look back at the Israelites and be like, how could they? Uh, But if we examine ourselves closely, I think we would reach the same conclusion about ourselves uh, that the Israelites of Moses' day uh, had in themselves. Uh, We're no different from them. Uh, Even though God provided for their needs, the people still complained. But uh, verse 17 details some of God's characteristics. When they say, but you are God, what exactly does that mean? Well, it means that God is ready to pardon He's gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abundant in kindness, and he will never forsake them. And this is our faithful God. That's verse 17. Verse 18, before they even came down from the mountain, before Moses even came down from the mountain with the Lord, the people were already rebelling, making a golden calf and and worshiping it. And still God did not forsake them or withhold his gracious provision. That's verses 19 to 21. God's patience really is truly remarkable. It's one of his most incredible attributes. When I read the Exodus story, and probably when you do too, uh, you're left pulling your hair out. Like, what's wrong with these people, first of all? And second, how could God continue to be so patient with them over and over again? And then I think about my own life and how patient God was with me when I was an unbeliever and how, God, how patient God is still with me uh, when I have periods of doubt and unbelief and when I sin. Uh, and I'm just so thankful uh, because God's patience is one of his most amazing attributes. We may ask, why? Why, God, don't you punish all the sin of the world right now? Uh, and why don't you come back today, Lord, and end all this that's going on in the world today? And I'm just thankful in my own life that he didn't come 20 years ago or I'd be toast. And I don't know how long we'd have to go back for you folks, but there was a day when you said, I believe. And if he came before that day, you'd all be toast. And so we're just so thankful for God and his patience and his mercy. And instead of sometimes being so eager for him to come back, we ought to be more eager to be praying for our families and our friends and the people we know and pray that he will save them before he returns. So that's verses up to verse 21. Now in verses uh, 22 to 25, the Levites confessed God's faithfulness uh, during the conquest of the land through Joshua. These are just some key dates that I have on the screen that will follow as we're going through the history of uh, what the Levites are being thankful for. So the Levites confessed God's faithfulness during the conquest of the land through Joshua. God allowed them, Joshua, to defeat the people of the land, just as God has promised. So the book of Joshua tells the story beginning with Joshua's conquest of Jericho uh, in 1406, where they marched around the walls seven times and the walls fell down. And from there, throughout the 1300s, the Israelites entered into the land. They went south, they went north, they went west, uh, and God gave them the victory as they conquered cities and reaped all the spoils. 
But they continue to rebel, and this cycle of rebellion and God's grace uh, continues on uh, through the book of Judges, uh, which is about 1300 to 1100 BC. The people disobeyed, verse 26, and and God disciplined them over and over again. Uh, But he also sent deliverers, judges, military leaders to rise up and deliver them from the hand of oppression. And God raised up prophets to warn them, verse 30. And yet the people ignored them and often killed the prophets that God sent. And this continued for centuries until at the end of verse 30, uh, Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of of Israel in 722 BC and then the southern kingdom of Judah in 586 BC. After a thousand years of Israel's rebellion against God, though, verse 31, God did not utterly forsake them. What does it say, verse 31? For you are a God, gracious and merciful. They returned to the land again with Zerubbabel in 538 BC, with Ezra in 458 BC. They rebuilt the wall. Nehemiah comes, or I'm sorry, they rebuilt the temple, and then Nehemiah comes in 444, rebuilds the walls, and here they are back in the land again. God gave them yet another chance. Now, brothers and sisters, does anyone here know? Does anyone here have a testimony about the grace and mercy of God? Now, if we were a different kind of church, you'd all stand up and start yelling out testimonies and grace of God. Uh, We don't do that, but I know every one of you would raise your hand, and if I passed the mic, every one of you would tell stories, and we'd miss the Super Bowl listening about stories of God's grace and mercy in your lives. God is a good, good God. Now, in verse 32, after all of this confession, they finally asked God for something. So let's see what it is. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardship seem insignificant to you. That's the petition. Do not let all the hardship seem insignificant to you. This is a cry for mercy. This is a cry for, even though they're in the land, uh, Lord, it's still, the burden is still heavy upon us. So what hardship are they talking about? Verse 36 and 37. Behold, we are slaves today, and as for the land which you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty, behold, we are slaves on it. And its abundant produce is for the kings who you have set over us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please, so we are in great distress." So you can see it, right, in, in, the, in, the, in the tone of the, of the language of the, of the prayer. It's really great distress that they're in. God allowed them to return to the land, but they still owed tribute back to the king of Persia. So their food and their cattle and their income, whatever it was, they had to give back a large percentage to uh, Persia. <clears throat> so they lived in the land, but they lived as tenants not as owners. They were tenants in the land. And this is the cause of their distress. To live as owners in the land, they would have to be obedient to God. Uh, And God fought to rebuild their temple, to reestablish them in the land. Uh, And as we've seen throughout our series in Ezra and Nehemiah, and God was giving them another chance to obey. And Ezra had read the law to them, so there's no way they could plead ignorance Uh, And they had heard Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the five books of Moses. And Deuteronomy 28 to 30, if you've read them recently, man, I mean, you talk about God promising uh, judgment for disobedience. Read those chapters and see uh, just how serious God is about sin. 
Uh, the Israelites knew because they had just recently heard Deuteronomy 28 to 30, and they knew that God promised to bless them for obedience and curse them for disobedience. So their response is to recommit themselves to God's covenant. And that's what we see beginning in chapter 9, verse 38. Uh, they are going to make an agreement with God uh, after they've pleaded now, please, please God, recognize, don't consider our distress too small. Here's how they're going to reaffirm the covenant. Verse 38, <clears throat> now because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our uh, Levites, and our priests. So this is uh, not a new covenant. This is the old covenant that, that God gave to Moses. This is the law. The people just recognized that God was really serious about them obeying it. And so that's what he wants from them, and that's what the Levites are praying for. And so that's what they're signing. They understood that God had exiled them to Babylon because of their disobedience, and now he's going to bring them back, and he expects obedience to this covenant. So their solution to the problem of, of, the, the problem of them being under the heavy hand of Persia is to recommit themselves by signing an agreement to pledge their renewed allegiance to God. Now, chapter 10, verses 1 to 27, is a long list of people who signed the document, just like you'd see at the bottom of the Declaration of Independence. So we'll skip over that, and verse 28 begins the obligations that they agreed to. So, uh, verse 30, they agreed they would not give their daughters to the people of the land. They would maintain their Jewish purity. Now, verse 31, they wouldn't do commerce with the people of the land on the Sabbath. So, uh, that's a, a Jewish law. The Gentiles were free to conduct business on the Sabbath if they wanted to, and they wanted Israel to conduct business with them, but uh, the Jews had decided here that they were not going to do that. Uh, God wanted Israel to be different, and they were going to be different by not doing business on the Sabbath. Now, the other obligations they agreed to were uh, concerned uh, contributions to the temple worship. So they would contribute to the house of the Lord, verses 32 and 33. They would contribute wood for the sacrifices. They would give uh, the first fruits of their crops, firstborn and animals, to the Lord. That's 35 and 36. Uh, verse 37 and 38, they would pay their tithes. And verse 39 is the summary of it all. They would not neglect the house of God. And so to summarize Nehemiah 9 and 10, the Israelites confessed their sin, they confessed God's grace, and they committed to God's covenant. It's a great way to start a revival. This is how revivals start. We, commit our, we confess our sin, we confess God's grace, and we commit ourselves to God. Now let's close with some applications. The first thing we should see is that confession is a necessary part of prayer. You know, Nehemiah chapter 9 is the longest prayer recorded in the whole Bible. It's a prayer of, of confession, and it's a prayer of contrition. And before the Israelites asked God for anything, uh, they confessed their sin. And it's a good prayer model for us to follow. We shouldn't dive into our petitions before acknowledging God's greatness and humility just to listen to us, let alone to answer us. So we should start our prayers like these Levites did, acknowledging our sin, uh, acknowledging God's sovereignty and God's righteousness, confessing our sin and, and our unworthiness, reminding God of his promises uh, to us and thanking him for his patience. And starting our prayer this way is the right way to start prayer because it puts us in the right frame of mind. It helps us to recognize who we are 
uh, compared to who God is. It helps us to acknowledge that we are not talking to our bro or our buddy, right? We are talking to the creator, holy sovereign of the universe. Uh, and, and it shows us that we understand that we deserve nothing but God, right? But God. But God is a God of, of mercy, grace, compassion. He hears his children and he answers us in his own time and, his, and in his own way. So confess and then ask. We also learn from this passage that God remains faithful to Israel. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 9 is just a rehearsal uh, of God's faithfulness to Israel over the centuries. And we're going to see in the upcoming weeks that just like Charles and Diana were not able to keep their covenant with each other, these Israelites who had just signed this agreement were not faithful to keep that agreement that they just signed either. Uh, it's because the Israelites continued in their sin uh, that they remained under oppression from Persia and then from Greece, and then from Rome. And four centuries later, Jesus Christ came, God, another offer of his grace and mercy to Israel as their Jewish Messiah, the fulfillment of all the prophets and the law that God had promised, and the Jews rejected him again. And when the Jews rejected Jesus, Jesus prophesied that, you see that temple over there? Not one stone is going to remain on top of another one because of your rejection of me. And that fulfillment happened in AD 70 when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And for almost 1900 years, Israel was without a home. That was their consequence of the rejection of their Messiah. But the proof that God will never forsake Israel is that Israel exists again as a nation today, right? I mean, incredibly, miraculously, Israel is back in the land. They don't possess all the land, uh, but God is giving them another chance. And so far, we know that most have still refused to recognize Jesus as their Messiah. But God is nothing if not patient. Now look back over chapter 9 uh, and, and just see for yourself how many times it says, but they on the one hand and but God on the other hand. Let's just look at a few of them. But they disobeyed, but God delivered them. But they did evil, but you bore with them for many years. But they would not give ear, but you did not make an end of them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. Uh, one day, God will cause all unbelieving Israel to believe. He will draw them to himself. He will save them, and he will fulfill all the promises made to Israel. So God will fulfill his promises to Israel, and God is faithful to us too. You know, when we talk about obedience to God, uh, I'm not talking about obedience as a reward. Uh, for, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not talking about uh, salvation as a reward for obedience and the good works that we do. We can't do anything to earn God's grace. We can't do anything to earn his favor. I'm talking about obeying God out of gratitude for what he's already done for us in saving us from our sins. We already have his favor. There's nothing we can do to earn salvation. It's a gift from God to everyone who asks, whether Jew or Gentile. And once we receive that gift of salvation, we cannot lose it. Jesus bought us eternally with his blood on the cross. And so there is nothing that you or I could do to lose our salvation. And that's God's faithfulness to those that he saves. We're all going to sin from time to time, but it is impossible for us to lose our salvation. John MacArthur once said, if we could lose our salvation, we would. And of course, that's true, right? Because we almost try to lose our salvation, right? With the amount of sins that we commit. But, but Jesus is faithful. God is faithful to us. And so I just remember the words, but 
God, but God. God is faithful. He keeps the covenants he makes. God is always faithful, always patient, always compassionate. Now, I know that some of you are sitting here in this room and you're waiting for God to do something mighty in your life. Uh, You need God to work some miracle. Uh, You are in a tough situation. You need God to deliver you from some difficult situation. Well, we follow the model here. Uh, We confess our sins to God. We make our requests known to God. We obey God. We trust him and we watch him work. And he will help us. He will save us in our times of distress. And he will save us from all, for all eternity. And that's why we praise him. And we praise his son, Jesus, who purchased our salvation on the cross. Let's pray. Lord God, I do thank you for these chapters that really just emphasize how faithful you are in the face of our unfaithfulness, Lord. We do confess our sin to you, Lord. We are a sinful people. We are prone to complaint. We are prone uh, to be unsatisfied with you and your provision, Lord, and and we confess those sins to you, Lord. We we thank you for what you have done, Lord, and for all that you have provided. And Lord, I just pray that that as we go about our weeks and months and uh, and, uh, whatever our needs happen to be, Lord, I just pray that uh, we will continue to remember the model, that we acknowledge your greatness and thank you for what you've provided, Lord, and then ask you to relieve the distress that we're in, Lord. And we know that you are faithful. Lord, we know that you will keep your promises. And we're just thankful for all you've done, Lord. And no matter what happens to us in this life, we are so grateful for what Jesus did on the cross because we know that our eternity is secure and we can never lose it, Lord. So we thank you so much for Jesus' work on the cross and we praise you in his matchless name. Amen.